0: Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Matthew Harmon. He is professor of New Testament studies at Grace Theological Seminary in Indiana. He's the author of many things, including The Servant of the Lord, and His Servant People, and Rebels and Exiles, a Biblical Theology of Sin and Restoration. His new book is entitled Galatians, uh, a study, a detailed study of the, the, the letter to the Galatians. That is our topic today. Welcome,
1: Professor Harmon. Thanks for having me on the show today.
0: All right. First, tell us overall, what is appealing and powerful and particular about this Letter, which you say is actually Paul's most polemic, polemic statement.
1: Yeah, so I think that one of the reasons that Galatians has become such a beloved uh, letter th- uh, for the church throughout history is the clarity with which it lays out the gospel, and the way that Paul so passionately defends the gospel— with a group of people that on the one hand he loves very dearly, and yet on the other hand he is deeply concerned about their spiritual condition. So you see him going back and forth between saying really uh, direct and blunt things to the Galatians, while at the same time calling them brothers and picturing himself even as their spiritual mother. And so there, there's a just this rich blend of very direct things that Paul says to the Galatians couched in a deep love and warmth for them.
0: Maybe I should ask you, I was going to ask this later, but maybe I should ask you now, uh, two questions. Uh, What should we know about the recipients of the letter? What makes them distinct? And what was Paul's uh, personal involvement with them? What do we know about the time he spent with them? I know those are big questions, very complicated questions. Sure, but sure. you're 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 the
1: expert here. <laughs> well, I will give a, uh, I'll try to give a brief answer to that. There there is scholarly debate as to uh, where these churches are located, depending on how you uh, interpret the word Galatia or Galatians. But uh, I am among a group of scholars that believe that Paul is writing to churches that he planted on his first missionary journey that is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. And so he, along with Barnabas, planted these churches during that initial missionary tour. And sometime shortly after, he left those cities and returned back to uh, Antioch, uh, uh, Syrian Antioch, He received word that uh, opponents had risen up within the churches and from the outside and were uh, basically telling these Galatians, these largely Gentile converts, that if they did not keep the requirements of the Mosaic law, they would not be fully justified before God. And so that prompts Paul to write this very intense letter to try to re-explain the content of the gospel and warn them about the disastrous consequences of trying to keep the Mosaic law as part of their uh, as part of being right with God. Right.
0: Uh, quick, quick dating point: when roughly when when do scholars date the letter?
1: So I believe that Paul wrote this letter probably around 48 A.D shortly before the Jerusalem Council that's recorded in Acts chapter 15. Other scholars take a later date and say that he might have written it in the mid-50s. A lot depends on uh, the earlier question of who is Paul writing to, as well as um, how do you understand what Paul says in Galatians 2, where he describes a visit to Jerusalem and whether that actually refers to what's recorded maybe in Acts 11 or what's recorded in Acts 15. So those are factors that play into the date. But I believe he wrote it around 48 AD before the Jerusalem Council.
0: Now, the, the, the format of the first part of, of your volume is really a detailed examination of uh, verse by verse. You know, if a few verses, your, your commentary your attempt to to bridge it into into our time are uh, are relevant so we, we've got a mix of historical contextualization theological discussion and contemporary application I think and it's a very good read in that regard uh what do we get in those opening verses Paul introduces himself he he makes his address what is distinctive about this one
1: well part of what distinguishes this initial uh, introduction is, uh, in Paul's letters in general, you get him using following a sort of standard pattern of uh, identifying himself as the author and giving himself some kind of description, usually focused on his apostolic ministry. And then he gives a greeting to the recipients, often describing them in some way. And then typically in his other letters, you get Uh, an extended sort of thanksgiving section where Paul thanks God for different things about the recipients. But what makes Galatians stand out is Paul moves directly from the introduction to his rebuke of the Galatians. There is no thanksgiving section. It's as if he is uh, so frustrated and so concerned that he jumps right past any sort of "I thank my God for you that you are this and that" to "I can't believe you are <laughs> departing from the gospel." What is wrong with you, people? Yeah, yeah.
0: And that, that, That's that personal note that is is a little stronger here than we find in in the other in the other letters, as you as you noted. You you say that there's a little bit of a, a, a complication or, or depth to the word apostle here. Yes. What is the word apostle? really mean in, in Paul's Paul's terms right here?
1: Well, when Paul talks about himself as an apostle, at, at one level he's talking about himself as uh, an authorized representative of the risen Lord Jesus. and uh, But specifically here in Galatians, he is emphasizing the divine origins of his status as an apostle. It's It seems as though... The uh, maybe his opponents were questioning Paul's authority or even just his status as a real apostle in comparison to men like Peter, James, and John who uh, followed the earthly Jesus during his ministry, and that somehow Paul really doesn't count as an actual apostle. So Paul stresses that he received his apostolic calling in the same way that those men did, through a direct commission from the risen Jesus himself. And that's, that's a big thrust of chapter one, for him to establish, my authority comes directly from the risen Jesus. And that's why uh, I can speak authoritatively about issues pertaining to what is the gospel and how should we live as people shaped by the gospel.
0: This is what sets him right on the same plane
1: as, as Peter, correct absolutely absolutely and, and and why he
0: paul doesn't he 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 has his experience his 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 conversion he's struck and he doesn't go as you know a, a big a big issue here is he doesn't go talk to others about this immediately he he goes to arabia yeah and that's because he doesn't need to right it has become direct from god correct
1: yes and so Paul is walking this really uh, delicate balance, this tightrope in chapters one and two, because on the one hand, he wants to stress, I got the gospel directly from Jesus appearing to me, the risen Jesus appearing to me on the road to Damascus, and he commissioned me with this ministry. On the other hand, though, he also wants to say, I preach the same gospel as Peter, James, and John. So we are on the same page when it comes to that. My authority doesn't derive from them or from the church in Jerusalem. But when it comes to the content of the gospel, we preach the same gospel.
0: Yeah. He goes back to Isaiah uh, soon, soon after, the, the suffering servant mm-hmm. section. Uh, why invoke Isaiah at this point?
1: Well, now we're, now we're getting into an area that actually is kind of the, really the genesis of why I became interested in Galatians in the first place going back years. But um, I, I think that for Paul, Isaiah was a particularly important prophetic witness in the Old Testament because as he saw it, it lays out the perhaps the clearest uh, statement of how God is going to redeem his people. And so I believe that Paul is at many points throughout the letter that both his argument and his theological reasoning is profoundly shaped by how Paul reads Isaiah, in particular chapters 49 through 54, especially in terms of, you know, chapter 49 of Isaiah has a servant passage where Paul borrows language to describe his own apostolic ministry, and then Uh, He borrows language from Isaiah 53 to talk about Jesus as the one who, uh, in chapter 2, loved me and gave himself for me. And echoes of Isaiah 53 show up also in the description in chapter 3 about Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law. So for for Paul, Isaiah 53 was a very foundational uh, passage that helps us understand what Jesus was accomplishing through his death and his resurrection. And so he comes back to that repeatedly. It feels like it's so much in his blood that he can't help but use expressions and language borrowed from Isaiah, even if he's not maybe fully consciously thinking about Isaiah as he's doing it.
0: He, he says a little later, uh, he refers to quote this present evil age. Yeah. Does he mean anything specific there? Any any particular evils or is this well, general evils <laughs> that we find sure. in 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 this world? Nothing's specified there or no?
1: Yeah, I think that it is a general reference to this fallen world under the effects of sin and the curse and the activity of Satan and his forces. And so that's a generic way of talking about, really in one sense, what, G- what Jesus talks about when he says the God of this world in referring to Satan, mm-hmm. uh, that this is a current age that is dominated by the effects of sin and death and the curse. And part of what makes that reference so powerful is that, that Paul says that Jesus has rescued us out of it. Not meaning that we no longer live in this present evil age, in this fallen world, but that it no longer has authority over us, it no longer enslaves us. And so in that sense, it's actually a contrast to what Paul refers to in Galatians 6.15 as a new creation, that we are part of the new creation that Jesus has inaugurated through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension— and we participate in the benefits of that new creation, in particularly with the gift of the Spirit. Mm-hmm.
0: You, you notice, you, you notice his, his complaints about it. He says he's amazed. Mm-hmm. People turned away from Christ and listened to those who quote distort the gospel. Uh, do we have any specific evidence of what that
1: false gospel is? He doesn't really he not really go into go into it, does he? Well, you, you have to, I think, piece it together from the rest of what Paul says, and it, and it seems like the, the main issue is that—the way that I like to try to summarize it with, uh, with my students in the classroom is, basically, Paul is saying, Jesus plus anything equals nothing, hmm. because ultimately, if you say you have to add on to Jesus, in this case, you have to— keep the Mosaic law. You have to get circumcised. You have to keep the food laws. You have to keep the Jewish calendar in order to be justified before God. When you add something onto Jesus, you're actually taking something away from him because you're saying Jesus alone is not sufficient. He hasn't done everything necessary to save his people. That,
0: that that says it, that there it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's that's something to, to, to remember. Very good. Now, Paul he turns to himself and is, brings up what we were talking a moment ago about, you know, authorizing himself. He he has the line, or am I striving to
1: please the people? How are we to read that line? Well, I think um, I think he's sort of reflecting back on his life before Christ, and. As he reevaluates that, he, he's going to unpack that a little bit more, even in uh, later in chapter one, about how he was advancing in Judaism even beyond his peers, that he was so zealous for keeping not just the Mosaic law, but all the additional layers of rules and regulations that his Pharisaical tradition had added onto that. And so I think. He is looking at that back at that and saying, I was, in essence, being essentially a people pleaser rather than being a servant of Christ. And when it comes to that distinction, I, I, part of what I do is I train future pastors and people who are going into ministry. And so I, I spend a lot of time trying to, to unpack this in terms of there is a constant temptation to be a people-pleaser in ministry. And if your first and foremost motivation is not to be a servant of Christ, you're going to end up falling into people-pleasing and be ultimately end up compromising at points where, where it is uh, wrong to, uh, to, to give in to what they want. This doesn't mean that we ignore what people want. It doesn't mean that we're uh, insensitive to feedback or anything like that. But our motivation has to be, I will answer to Christ for who I am and what I've done and how I even serve in ministry. And so I cannot be motivated ultimately by trying to make as many people as possible happy with what I'm doing.
0: You know, I've always wanted to keep in mind Paul's life before the conversion.
1: And, and, and to say that, you know, the
0: conversion doesn't remove what he was before, he carries that memory with him. I mean, he he was zealous in, in persecution. You know, he he helped he helped kill Stephen, mm-hmm. and that is that. Here he's he's talking about that that pre conversion life. Uh, this and this is this is certainly not false humility at all. It is saying I I was bad and I was changed, and yes. and this is this actually enhances his authority,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the, the fact that uh, Paul can look back at his life before Christ, and, and in other places he can talk positively about it, and uh, he he acknowledges, look, uh, this is how God has made me. And I think part of what we can misunderstand about, about conversion is, yes, the Bible talks about we become a new creation. So there's a foundational and radical newness to our life once we become uh once we are born again but i think what we can sometimes misunderstand is that what god does is he takes our existing gifts abilities uh, uh interests and he reorients them rightly so that the skills that we have the gifts that we have they don't disappear it's just that god puts them to use for his kingdom purposes rather than just for our own selfish enjoyment or our own selfish purposes.
0: Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of western and catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. His companion Barnabas, what is his status in this story and and in history generally?
1: Yeah so so Barnabas uh was a key figure who actually helped Paul uh get connected with the Jerusalem church initially after his conversion because they were understandably suspicious about this man who was the most well-known persecutor of the church who's now claiming to be a follower of Jesus so you can understand why they'd be suspicious of that is he just trying to infiltrate the church to break it up or whatever but Barnabas managed to bridge that gap and bring him into fellowship with the uh, with, with the believers in Jerusalem. And eventually Barnabas ends up going on the first missionary journey where these churches were planted. And so the the Galatians would have been very familiar with Barnabas as kind of Paul's right-hand man. And that makes it all the more heartbreaking and surprising when you get into Galatians chapter 2. And Paul is telling the story of an incident that happened in uh, Antioch in Syria where uh, Peter comes uh, to visit and he's initially eating meals with Gentiles, basically ignoring the Jewish food laws. And then people from Jerusalem come and say, Pete, please stop doing that. And he says, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. And basically all of the, the Jewish believers... Uh, follow Peter's lead and even Barnabas even you know the way that, that Paul says it there in uh, Galatians 2 kind of highlights Barnabas as sort of a uh as the ultimate uh feeling of betrayal right when it's uh even Barnabas was led astray mm-hmm. by their hypocrisy that just the way that's worded feels like it's like Paul is Reliving that sort of emotional gut punch of even my closest ministry companion got taken away into this hypocrisy.
0: No. Yeah. You you actually say that returning to mosaic regulations. I mean, this is Paul's point, but you're you're paraphrasing would quote nullify the grace of God, not not just interfere with or or distract from, but actually nullify. Strong word,
1: yes? Yeah, that's that's taken out of uh, chapter 2, verse 21, where essentially I think what Paul is saying is, if I go back to trying to keep the Mosaic Law as part of relating to God or relating to others, then what I am saying is, is that Christ's death is either unnecessary or not enough. Hmm. And both of those are completely unthinkable as far as Paul is concerned. And he makes the point of, if why would God send his son if it was possible to keep the Mosaic law and be right with God? It seems like an utter waste. It would be unnecessary. You could just tell people, keep the law. But that's such a dead end that God had to send his son to rescue us, to redeem us. And so going back to that Mosaic law is an, a, ultimately a rejection of the sufficiency of what Jesus has done for us.
0: Paul asks then, quote, why then was the law given? What's his answer?
1: Yeah, it's interesting as you're reading through chapter three there, he's, he he says a number of uh, of things that are that are understandably negative towards the law. So when Paul finally sort of rhetorically asked that question of why then the law, that that's the natural question of, okay, Paul, if, if all these, these things are bad about the law, if it brings a curse, if it, um, if it's not uh, capable of making us alive, then why, why did God give the law? And ultimately part of his answer is, that it was given for a temporary period of time. It came with a built-in expiration date, and its purpose was to expose the sinfulness of sin so that it could be on display for everyone to see as utterly sinful and so that it could be definitively dealt with by the death of Jesus.
0: Hmm. Paul says, quote, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. How, how radical would this sound to Galatian ears? Or, or has this been absorbed by now? Or must, must it be reiterated because this is, this is really, really different?
1: Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it, it was completely out of step with uh, the thinking of Paul's day these were basic um, ways of breaking down the world in terms of uh, ethnic status, in terms of gender, in terms of socioeconomic status. Those were fundamental building blocks for how the ancients thought about themselves and how they tried to put together the world around them. And so for, for Paul to say, those building blocks, those categories have no validity whatsoever when it comes to being right with God, that would have been an incredibly radical statement that I think still would have caught even his Galatian-believing audience off guard with, wow, it is that fundamental, it is that significant in terms of the fact that none of those things matter when it comes to being right with God. None of those things matter when it comes to being a descendant, a, a true descendant of Abraham through faith in Jesus. Now, I think it should be pointed out that this this statement is, it is important, but sometimes it can be misunderstood as if nowhere else are there any distinctions about gender or about ethnicity or about uh, socioeconomic status and when you read the rest of what Paul writes in his other letters, it becomes clear, no, there are still some distinctions here when it comes to these areas. Paul's point here is, when it comes to your status before God, none of that matters. What matters is faith in Jesus. He goes
0: to f- so far as to say that uh, not to... To know God, to revere God, to 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 turn away from God, even even just as a matter of of distraction, diversion, is in fact a mode of slavery. You are not free from God. To be free from God is to be enslaved uh, to other things. Strong yeah. language or must must. This isn't just rhetorical.
1: No, he 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 is absolutely serious in the sense of. Um, when it comes to the idea of freedom, there there really is no such thing as freedom from God, because that is a form of slavery to your own sinful desires, slavery to the way that the world thinks and the way that the world operates. Uh, that's that's part of what he's actually getting at in, uh, in chapter one when he talks about uh, Christ rescuing us from the present evil age that all of those powers, uh, whether it's sin, whether it's the curse, whether it's the work of Satan himself, all of that is a form of slavery. And the only true freedom that is found is in becoming a servant of Christ. And he's going to go on to talk about that, what true freedom looks like in chapter 5 when he talks about not using freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh, but as a position to be able to serve others with the kind of love that God has shown us in Christ. Paul puts the entire
0: law into one command. Yeah. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is this precisely what Jesus said?
1: Yeah, in fact, I think this is one of those places where it becomes evident that uh, Paul is aware of specific things that Jesus taught, even though he wasn't uh, a follower of Jesus during his uh, earthly ministry, and what what Paul does is he builds on that love command, and then I think he expands on it in one sense. When in chapter six, verse two, he talks about bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That the idea is is that this lo- this love command of love God, love neighbor is embedded within this law of Christ, where we self-sacrificially love others as an expression of the love that God has shown us through Jesus bearing our greatest burdens of sin and, uh, and death.
0: What, what does it mean to say, as Paul does in the conclu- the conclusion, a strong statement, the world has been crucified to me through the cross an eye to the world.
1: Yeah, so I think that that is is capturing the way that this present evil age operates, the way that this world thinks, the fact that it divides people on the basis of ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic status, and gender, the fact that this present evil age is under the influence of sin and death and the curse and the powers of Satan. He's saying all of that I've been crucified to, that those things no longer have power or dominion over me because now I am, because of my union with Christ, part of the new creation, the the new uh, the the redemption of creation that Jesus has begun through his death and resurrection and is continuing in the lives of individual people, they experience that as they are born again, as they are brought from spiritual death to spiritual life through the work of the Spirit.
0: There's more, much more, in this (laughs) volume to to talk about. But for now, uh, the book is Galatians. Uh, Professor Harmon, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me on the show today.